Good evening, everyone. It's our great pleasure tonight to have with us Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is serving as the, uh, the Crisell and Efrat Family University Professor of Jewish Thought in Yeshiva University. And we've had the pleasure of hearing him in, already in many different venues here on campus and to many different audiences. Uh, one thing uh, has been uh, common throughout is uh, the audience's embrace of uh, Rabbi Sachs, his messages, his words, and it really has been a, a thrilling for us relationship uh, over the last couple of months. And uh, Rabbi Sachs is here this week, especially um, preceding the Chag Micha. We'll be having a record Chag Hasmicha, really a historic event this coming Sunday, which if you don't have tickets to, I can't get your tickets to, but, but, um, but uh, there will be viewing in satellite locations on campus as well as on the web at www.yu.edu. We'll have 230 Mesmachim, the largest ever by far class in a four-year period of rabbis coming out of YU. And uh, it's our great pleasure to involve Rabbi Sachs and to have him here as part of those festivities. Tonight, the audience contains many rabbinic alumni, um, many of the rabbis who are waiting to hear what Rabbi Sachs will share with us on rabbinic leadership. Um, it is a time that we're celebrating the rabbis, celebrating the leadership in our community. Uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, as I said, is the Crisell and Efrat Family University Professor of Jewish Thought at Yeshiva. He is a global religious leader. Most of you know him as the author of 25 books. And the fact that he served as Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth from 1991 through 2013. Um, he holds an enormous number of degrees and honorary degrees. And uh, in addition to his work at Yeshiva University, he's currently a professor, a distinguished, a distinguished professor of Judaic thought at New York University at this point, knighted by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005 and made a life peer, taking his seat in the House of Lords where he returns on a regular basis to maintain his position in the House of Lords. Um, we are really privileged to have you with us. Rabbi Sachs. Kvodarav, Kvodarabanim, friends. Um, I'm not entirely sure what you would like me to speak about this evening. Um, and therefore I will uh, try... Sorry, can you hear okay? You can't. Oh, sorry. Uh, can you hear me now? Very good. I uh, ha still haven't entirely got over that occasion when I was speaking and somebody at the back of the room said, could you speak louder? I can't hear. And somebody in the front said, I can. Would you like to change places with me? Uh, however, um, I was asked to say just a few words about rabbinic leadership in the 21st century. And let me therefore, I'll say a few words about this and then perhaps we'll have time you to ask any questions that you might be interested in. And let me share with you um, a sense of what was very particularly important to myself and to our team 
In the 22 years in which I served as Chief Rabbi Britain in the Commonwealth, the truth is, it is sometimes challenging to lead Am Yisrael. Um, the good news is that we are among the world's finest speakers. The bad news is we're among the world's worst listeners. Um, we say, Hashem Ro'i, the Lord is my shepherd, but I have not yet met a single Jew who was a sheep. We are not terribly good at following. And I don't know if you recall, what are the first recorded words said to Moshe Rabbeinu by a fellow Israelite? What were they? Mi samacha laish sa v'shofet aleinu. Moses hadn't even dreamed of being leader and already they were challenging his leadership. So this can be sometimes a difficult and demanding role, as any Rav, and there are a number of you here this evening, will know. But what we did as a matter of principle in our office was that throughout these years, whenever there was a challenge, we said, Let us bring a book and see what the Torah has to say. And so I discovered a third dimension of Torah. We know the two obvious dimensions. There's the Torah you learn from teachers, and there is the Torah you learn from books. But we discovered a third kind of Torah, the Torah you learn from life. The questions you ask of the Torah through the dilemmas you are faced in life and somehow you find the Torah speaking to you in ways that you wouldn't have understood had you not been in that situation. So I just want to share with you a few insights that we uncovered through life, studying the Torah and the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu. As we're coming, starting the countdown towards Pesach, we know that in the Haggadah, Moshe Rabbeinu hardly appears at all. He only appears once, and that in a very oblique way. And we know why Moses is left out of the Haggadah. It is very clear that the Haggadah is telling us something fundamental to Jewish belief, something that, in fact, John F. Kennedy made clear in his inaugural in 1961 when he said that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. If the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim is telling us any one thing, it is Ein Lanu Melech Ela In Judaism we make this absolutely fundamental distinction between human beings and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it is to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we owe our freedom, and therefore to whom we are answerable and accountable. This is part of the Torah's polemic against an idolatry that existed in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu and still exists in part of the world today, which is the tendency of human beings to worship human beings. It is clear to me that the Torah is engaged here in a polemic against Pharaoh Ramses II, 
who many historians believe is the most likely candidate for the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And we know from the temple that he built, he built several uh, in Karnak and in Luxor, but above all in Abu Simbel. Has any of you been there? I haven't been there, but you, you, you will see it on Google Images if you just go there and have a look. Outside, he built this, these monumental 60-foot-high statues, representatives of him, himself and his wife. And inside the temple, he has a statue of himself aligned together with three of the Egyptian deities. In other words... All pharaohs were assumed to join the gods when they died, but Ramses II was the one pharaoh who insisted on being worshipped as a god while he was still alive. So when the Haggadah says, Ani velo shaliach, it is telling us something that Judaism was telling us never ever idolize human beings. And that, of course, continued throughout the Roman era, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar worshipped as demigods and it has happened time and again in history, in Nazi Germany in Stalinist Russia and even today in North Korea and other places. And that ultimately is why Moshe Rabbeinu is absent from the Haggadah. That is exactly why the Torah tells us that to this day no one knows his burial place so that it would not become a place of pilgrimage as happened with the temples erected for dead pharaohs. Uh, uh, the Giza pyramid and, and others already a thousand years before the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. However, the Torah is telling us something very powerful about Moshe Rabbeinu when it tells us that this man who was the mouthpiece for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's word for us and for all time. That he was lo ish devarim anochi gam itmol gam shom ki kvad peh kvad lashon anochi. HaKadosh Baruch Hu deliberately chose somebody who is not a man of words to be the mouthpiece of the words of God exactly as he chose the first Jewish child to be born to a woman who could not give birth. That is to say that somehow Jewish leaders are testimony in themselves to something greater than themselves. That is how in the Jewish conception of leadership humility is the highest virtue. It is the space we make for the smallness of us and the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that constitutes the distinctive Jewish approach to leadership. Now, I uh, want to share with you just a few moments in Moshe Rabbeinu's life that resonated with myself and my rabbinical colleagues as we wrestled with the challenges of leading a British and Commonwealth Jewish community. And here is the first one. Vayigdal Moshe, Vayetzei El Echav, Vayar Basivlotam. The first thing any of us has to do if we seek to lead is to enter into 
the world of those we seek to lead and to know at first hand their suffering, their difficulties and their pain. That is an absolutely essential condition for Jewish leadership. People have to feel that you understand them, that you empathize with their situation and without that you cannot lead. This is told by Chazal in the extraordinary denouement of the famous story about the day that the sages deposed Rabban Gamliel from leadership, the Sugyen Brachot, Chavav Chavzayim. We know that the three occasions in which Rabban Gamliel humiliated his Av Beidin Rabbi Yoshua eventually proved one too many for the sages and uh, he was deposed. In his place they appointed Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah who as a miracle occurred and his beard went grey overnight. This is a recurring miracle for anyone who takes on a position of Jewish leadership. When I became chief rabbi in my early 40s they said to me aren't you a little young for the job to which my reply was in this job I will age rapidly. Now but what is most extraordinary in this very famous story is the last scene. In the last scene Rabbi Gamliel undertakes to apologize to Rabbi Yoshua and he goes to see him at his house and he says from the walls of your house I see that you are a charcoal burner the walls of the house were black and Rabbi Yoshua said to him these words Oi l'dor parnasato woe to the generation of which you are the leader because you do not understand the trials and the sufferings that Talmidei Chachomim have to go through and how they have to struggle to make a living. Now that scene is a fascinating scene. On the one hand, it is in a way very inspiring that Rabbi Yoshua who was the Av Beit Din and Rabban Gamliel who was the Nasi sat together day after day for years and in all that time Rabban Gamliel did not realize that his deputy was a poor man I think that tells us a great deal about the egalitarian culture of the Beit Midrash in which they worked but at the same time Rabbi Yoshua was surely right when he said, if you do not understand the suffering of the people you lead, you don't realize what struggle we have to make a living, that I have to make a living as a charcoal burner, then you are not fit to lead the Jewish people. That is the meaning of the phrase, Vayabasivlotam. Moshe Rabbeinu, in order to be a leader, had to immerse himself first in the sufferings of his people. And that, of course, is surely a major challenge in Jewish life today. We faced a challenge, as you face a challenge, for instance, at the sheer cost 
of Jewish day school education. Baruch Hashem, we were able to solve this problem in Anglo Jewry in a way that you can't in the United States. I wish you could, but you can't. We got the government to pay for the schools. And the result is we troubled the number of day school places in Anglo Jewry in 20 years. We moved the community from 1993 to 2013 from a community where 25% of children went to Jewish day schools to one where 70% go to Jewish day schools. The way to do it in the United States, I have no idea. Even though I've been here at least eight weeks, I am not yet fully the world's expert on American Jewry, and I hesitate to even suggest what to do. But the truth is that this is a fundamental issue for rabbinic leadership. Chasat Torah al Mamonam Shal Yisrael. Agarish Baruch has Rachmonas on the on on the cost of being Jewish, and it should never be exclusive, so that only the wealthy are able to be and live a Jewish life. At the very heart of the sufferings of Spanish Jewry, you know that Spanish Jewry had its Kristallnacht in 1391. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. For 101 years, Jews lived in a very, very repressive regime where the penalties of being Jewish were very high. What did the Jewish community do? It convened a synod at Valladolid and imposed a tax on kosher meat, on wine, on simchas, so that every single Jewish community, however small, would be able to afford a Jewish day school. And uh, I think that is a major challenge. Number one, a Rav, to be able to lead, has to enter into the problems, the real-life problems of those he leads. Second, is very, very powerful episode. It occurs at the moment at the burning bush where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is summoning Moshe Rabbeinu to lead the Jewish people. And Moshe Rabbeinu replies, They won't believe in me. And at that point, as you know, the Torah tells us that God gave Moshe Rabbeinu three signs. A staff that turned into a snake, the hand that went leprous, and the water that turned into blood. Chazal noted that two of those three signs recur later on in the narrative. The staff and the snake, the water that turns into blood, but the hand that turned leprous does not recur. And Chazal made an enormous imaginative leap, which I find one of the most extraordinarily powerful and they said that the second sign was not a sign but a punishment Moshe Rabbeinu cast doubt on people with whom he should not have entertained doubts and he was physically punished for speaking as it were Lashon Hara about the Jewish people and then Chazal say that this is what God said to them, said to him, They are believers, children of believers, but you, in the end, will not believe. They are believers, as it says, at Kriyat Yam Suf, it says, they believed in God and his 
servant Moses, the children of believers, as it says about Abraham, but you in the end will not believe, as it says when he struck the rock, I find that an extraordinary statement. It tells us the second rule of leadership. A leader does not have to believe in himself or herself. The greatest leaders in Jewish history had the greatest self-doubts. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Mianochi, who am I to lead? Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah says, I cannot speak for I am a child. Each one of them felt inadequate to the task. To be a Jewish leader, you don't have to believe in yourself. But you do have to believe in those you lead. And that is the second condition of Jewish leadership, which is sometimes very, very difficult. You have to believe in the people in whom you lead. There's a very strange Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, which says, Chamisha Talmidim Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had five Talmidim, and it lists them. And then it goes on to describe them. And the question is, what is this Mishnah coming to tell us? It's a simple historical fact, and Pirkei Avot is not a work of historical fact. It's a work of ethical teaching. And I believe the Mishnah is asking the following question. How is it that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had five Talmidim of that degree of greatness, of Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkenes and Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach? How was it? Hu haya moneh shivchan. He used to recount their praise. In other words, he was able to see what each of those Talmidim could become and he believed in them so that they were able to realize their potential. That Mishnah is telling us how to have disciples. You have disciples by believing in them. There is a very beautiful brief passage in the Sifrei, in the Halachic Midrash to Bamidba and Devarim. And it occurs in uh, Moses' song where he uses the phrase Kel Emuna Ve'enavel the God of faith. And on this the Sifrei says as follows Kel She'emin Ba'olam Ubra'o God had faith in the universe and he created it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has faith in us. The very fact that we exist testifies to that faith in us. And I believe that Hashem has more faith in us than we have in ourselves. Sometimes it can happen that even your own parents, God forbid, can give up on you. But Hashem never gives up on us. And to have that faith in people is what Hashem asks for from a leader. Rule number two, have faith in the people you lead. I go to uh, Israel, I used to go to Israel every year with a uh, choir 
and Chazanim to make concerts for victims of terror and for the people on the front lines in Sterot and by the Lebanese border. And I know that in Israel, secular Israelis um, are allergic to rabbis. So we just went there to make concerts. I didn't give them a hard time. I didn't speak. I just sang. And I discovered something very interesting. I discovered, as I put it once, I believe, that secular Israelis are the only people who believe that secular Israelis are secular. Deep down, and I can tell you, I can give you a proof of this, that secular Israelis wanted from me one thing that almost none of my congregation ever asked of me in 22 years. You know what secular Israelis wanted from me? A bracha. That's what they wanted. They wanted a blessing from a rod. And don't tell me that these people are secular. They are maminim, b'nei maminim. But the trouble is, we need rabbanim who believe in them. You don't need to believe in yourself. You need to believe in the people you lead. And that is the second lesson I learned from Moshe Rabbeinu, and it saved me from a lot of anguish about our congregation. Rule three. I had the great privilege of writing this little dva for President Bill Clinton, as you probably saw. He brought out the book a year ago, uh, Rabbi Menachem Gnack of the OU. Developed a friendship with Bill Clinton and wrote a dva Torah for him, which he used in several of them. And President Clinton then asked him to... Uh, supply some more and I wrote several for him and one in particular he liked and Menachem has reprinted it in his book and I share it with you because it is a Pesach concept I said imagine that you as a leader imagine yourself as a leader being given the opportunity to make a speech under conditions that guarantee that that speech will resonate throughout history. It is a more momentous moment than Gettysburg or Martin Luther King standing by the statue of, of, of Abraham Lincoln. Here is the situation. You are the leader of a people who have been in exile for 210 years. They have been enslaved and oppressed. And now, after many miracles and wonders and plagues, they are about to go free. And you have summoned them, and you are about to address them. What will you speak about? What would you speak about? You speak about... Liberty, a new birth of freedom. You could speak about the destination that lay ahead. The Eretz Zavad Chalavu Devash, the land flowing with milk and honey. Or if you were made of somewhat sterner stuff, you could tell them about some of the difficulties that lie ahead. What the late Nelson Mandela 
meant by the phrase, the long walk to freedom. Had you done any of those things, it would be the great speech of a great leader. Moshe Rabbeinu did none of those things. And that is what made him a unique leader. What he did, and you just look it up in Parashat Bo, in the 12th and 13th chapters of Sefer Shemot, is three times he came back to the same subject. Vahaya ki yishalcha bincha it shall come to pass if your children ask you such and such in the future, then say to them such and such. If your children say this to you, say that to them. You shall teach your child in that day. They are thinking about tomorrow. He is thinking about the distant future. They are thinking about freedom and he is talking about the duty of parents to educate their children. This is an extraordinary thing. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu choose to do that? And I suggested the answer is this. That to win freedom is easy. But to preserve freedom is very hard. To defend a country, you need an army. But to defend a civilization, you need education as the conversation between the generations. And that is how Jews became the people whose citadels were schools, whose heroes were teachers, and whose passion was learning and the life of the mind. And that is why all the great civilizations from the Pharaoh of the Egypt of the Pharaohs all the way through Assyria, Babylon, the Alexandrian Empire, the Roman Empire, all the way through. All of those civilizations have been consigned to history. And I'm Israel Chai. I find this very, very extraordinary and very moving. I told uh, the kids in your high school this morning a little story that I find absolutely fascinating. I don't know if you... I, I was once a long way from home and I was in a hotel in Hong Kong and I switched on the television and I saw a program... I, I never watch television normally. I just saw something called the Discovery Channel. You know this, this thing? It's, it's, you know. And what, do I, what am I looking at? I'm looking at a documentary about Ramses II and about the temples that he built in Karnak and Abu Simbel and Luxor, and they're still standing there. And they are still there 33 centuries later. And for 10 minutes, I am carried along by the enthusiasm of the narrator of this documentary. And then I think to myself, hang on one moment, who built those temples? Our ancestors. And then I thought, what if... As a thought experiment, we could travel back in time, 33 centuries, and actually visit Ramses II, and actually say to him, O oh, mighty emperor, ruler of the known world, child of the sun, you name it, you know, I have a message for you from 33 centuries in the future. I have good news and I have bad news. 
He says, what's the good news? You say, well, there's a nation alive and well today that will still be alive and well 3,300 years into the future. He says, what's the bad news? You say, it's not going to be you. He says, who there? And you say, you see those slaves laboring on your building site? They are going to be alive and well 33 centuries from now. Can you imagine how crazy such an idea would be? Let's face it. Uh, the Egypt of the Pharaohs was already 18 centuries old by the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Already a thousand years before Moshe Rabbeinu, Pharaoh Khufu had built the Giza Pyramid, which was the tallest man-made structure until 1889 when they built the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it's an astonishing achievement. And there's countless steeple of Ely Cathedral, but that's only a little steeple, you know. Here is a building where they set these t- one-ton stones every two minutes for 20 years. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. He ruled the, na- he bestrode the narrow world like a colossus. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the name Moses and the name Ramses are almost identical. Did you ever notice this? The word Messes, which is an Egyptian word. The Torah gives us the Hebrew etymology I drew him from the water, but the Egyptian etymology of the word Messes is different. What does Messes mean? It means a child. And now you understand the poetry and the drama of this encounter. Because Ramses means the child of Ra, who was the Egyptian sun god. This is a demigod. Le roi de le soleil. And against him is Messiah, just an anonymous child. And not only would your prediction have seemed absurd, it is doubly so when we consider the first recorded instance of the name Israel outside of Tanakh. As you know, the first time the word Israel appears anywhere outside of a Jewish text is on the Menepta Stele, inscribed in around 1225 BCE by Manapta IV, the immediate successor of Ramses II. And in it contains the lines, Israel is laid waste, her seed is no more. The first reference to Israel outside the Bible is an obituary. Ironically, so is the second, the measure steely of the 9th century BCE. In other words, here is a nation that the Egyptians had already regarded as finished, written out of history. And yet it was Israelites who survived and the Egypt of the Pharaohs that had reached its summit at the time of Ramses II and subsequently in the next few centuries rapidly declined. And the question is, how come And I suggest the answer is quite simple. Ancient Egypt and ancient Israel were two civilizations that asked the ultimate question that any of us can ask. How in this all too finite span of years that we call a life can we be part of something immortal? And the Egyptians and the Israelites gave different answers to the same question. 
The Egyptians said you become immortal by building monuments of stone that will outlast the sands and winds of time. And the truth is, they did. The stones remain. But the civilization that gave birth to them does not. The Israelites said no. HaKadosh Baruch Hu taught Moshe Rabbeinu that to become immortal as a people, you do not have to build monuments of stone. All you have to do is engrave your values on the hearts of your children and they on theirs and so on through the generations. And that is how Jews survived. Therefore, to be, to just sit and think of that speech or those speeches of Moshe Rabbeinu in Parashat Bo is to tell us that to be a leader you have to raise your eyes to the far horizons of the future. None of us are Moshe Rabbeinu. But we in our office had a simple decision procedure. Any single decision that we ever took was tested by the following question. How will this affect our children or grandchildren 25 years from now? And that was the only criterion by which we made decisions. You play for today, you are gone tomorrow. You play for the Tvach Aruch, for the long term. That is how Jews lead. Ezehu Chacham Haroetanolat. To lead is to fix your eye on the far horizon. And then let me share with you a fourth lesson that I learned from Moshe Rabbeinu. If your aim is transcendental meditation and inner serenity, do not become a leader of Am Yisrael. It can be a stressful occupation. And I think I have to admit that in 22 years of leading the British and Commonwealth Jewish communities, I had more than one dark night of the soul. And I can only pray that all of you are spared such agmat nefesh. When that happened, I used to sit with my wife Elaine, and we would read together Parshat Balodacha. I don't know if you remember that extraordinary episode where the Israelites, the Asaf Suf, they, they, they complain. What do Jews do for a living? They complain about the food. Yeah, am I right? This is uh, the famous encounter I had with uh, Mr. Tung Chi Wa in, in Hong Kong. I used to be the chief rabbi of Hong Kong. Then the Brits gave it back to the Chinese. And I would always meet the head of state. So if there was a new head of state, I would go and meet the new head of state. And I met Mr. Tung, and, uh, who turned out to be a real philo-Semite and a great admirer of the state of Israel. In fact, he was such an admirer of the state of Israel, he, uh, after a couple of months in office as governor of uh, Hong Kong, he made a visit to Israel to learn how to create in Hong Kong a high-tech economy. And when I heard of this, I summoned the Israeli ambassador and I said to him, please send a message to Shimon Peres. 
Shimon Peres always dreamt that one day Israel would be the Hong Kong of the Middle East. I said, now Hong Kong dreams that one day it will be the Israel of the Far East. So, uh, the um, Moshe Rabbeinu suffers in the 11th chapter of Bamidbar what can only be called a breakdown. He says these words to HaKadosh Baruch He says, in at If this is what you're going to do to me, Hargeni Naharog, please kill me now. If I find favor in your eyes, Baal Ereberati. And let me not continue to look upon this evil fate of mine. He prayed to die rather than carry on. Incidentally, three other people did in Tanakh as well. Anyone know who else? Eliyahu Anavi, Yirmiyahu Anavi, and Yonah. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu then does something surpassingly strange. He says, As falishivim zikenim, gather 70 elders, v'atzalti min aroch ha'shealacha, and I will take the spirit which is on you, and I will besamti alehem, and I will place it on them, and they will share the burden with you so that you don't have to lead alone. Now this is a very strange remark. Because how did that help Moshe Rabbeinu? Don't forget, what problem did Moshe Rabbeinu have at the time? May I in Libasa? How can I find meat to give them? What do 70 elders do to help Moshe Rabbeinu provide fleshics for Am Yisrael? HaKadosh Baruch Hu did that himself. He didn't need any human help. Secondly, did he need the 70 to distribute the food? The Israelites did that for themselves. They didn't need any help. Thirdly, was Moshe Rabbeinu short of people to delegate to? Yisrael had already come and seen him leading alone and said, What you're doing is not good. The words not good only appear how many times in the Torah? Lotov only appears twice in the Torah. Lotov It's not good to live alone. It's not good to lead alone. Yisrael had already told him, Choose people to delegate to. He already had that. Besides which, what did any of this have to do with Vatsalti Minaruach? The Agadish Baruch Hu taking Moshe Rabbeinu's Ruach and giving it to 70 elders. What the problem Moshe Rabbeinu had was practical, not spiritual. He wasn't short of Ruach, Agadish. So, how did this help? It seems to make no sense at all. And yet, if you look at the text, it is clear that that moment changed Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Because immediately afterwards we see a completely different Moshe Rabbeinu. You remember what happened. He chooses 72, then by lot he eliminates two, Eldad and Meidad, who are left in the camp, while Moshe Rabbeinu goes off with the 70 elders. But Saltim and Arach, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, infuses the 70 with the spirit of Moshe Rabbeinu and the same happens to Eldad and Meidad Joshua sees this as a challenge to Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership he says stop them prophesying they're a threat to you and Moshe Rabbeinu replies all together 
Are you a jealous on my behalf? However, that all God's people were prophets. No more depression. Here is a man who is generous to the nth degree. However, that everyone becomes a leader. His depression has vanished. In the next chapter, we see something even more striking. His own brother and sister start speaking about negatively about him. Now, if you are worried about Amcha complaining, how much more so when it's your brother and sister, and yet Haish Moshe Anav Maod, he doesn't react at all, and when God perishes Miriam, he gets up and burns for a kelner of This is a different Moshe Rabbeinu. Before and after, the change is immense. And yet it all happened as a result of Esfali Shivim Zgenim Vasaltim in Arov. It doesn't make sense. Friends, let me tell you the moment which I think I understood what was going on. It came at a very difficult time in my life when my father, Alavishan, was Nifta. And I was sitting Shiva for him. And I think anyone who has ever sat Shiva must have had the same experience, a similar experience. My father, Alavishan, did not have an easy life. He came to Britain as a child, as a refugee. The family were poor. He had to leave school at the age of 14 to help support the family. He never had an education as a result. He sold schmatters in Commercial Road, which is the equivalent of your Lower East Side. He never had an easy life. And when he was Nifter Rahman al-Litzlan, people came, and I'm sure you had the same experience if you've ever had that sad experience. People came to tell me of acts of kindness he had done for them decades earlier, in some cases before I was born. And I sat there weeping. Because as they were telling me these stories, I was thinking to myself, why did you wait until he was no longer here? Why didn't you tell him that when he was alive? If he had only known that somebody appreciated him, he would have had a quite different life. If only he had known what an impact he had on other people's lives. And then I realized, he had not done it. That is life. We never actually get to see the impact we have on others. We never really fully fathom how one act of kindness that we may have done without even being conscious of it is never forgotten. The good we do lives after us. Mark Antony, Shakespeare's Mark Antony was quite wrong. It is the greatest thing that does. And then I realized that that is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for Moshe Rabbeinu. For one brief moment, he let Moshe Rabbeinu see the impact he had on 70 elders. He could actually see that they had internalized his spirit. He had changed their lives. And from that moment on, he never suffered depression again. From that moment on. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for him what he so rarely does for us. He actually showed us the difference we make. 
He showed Moshe Rabbeinu his spirit resting on 70 elders. And at that moment, the impact Moshe Rabbeinu had on others, which is normally, with all of us, invisible, suddenly became transparent. And here was Moshe Rabbeinu who had a moment before been thinking, what impact have I had on this generation? I took them from slavery to freedom. I divided the sea for them. They were hungry. I gave them manna from heaven. They were thirsty. I got Hashem to send them water from a rock. And here they are complaining about the food the way they always did. What difference did I make? And Hashem shows Moshe Rabbeinu what difference he did make was only to 70 people. It doesn't matter. Yochanan ben Zakkai, five Talmudim. It doesn't matter. To be able to see the impact you have on even one life. Nefesh achas ka'olam mole. If one life is like a universe, the only way we ever change the universe is one life at a time. And that is what Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu how he had transformed the elders and turned them into prophets. Moshe Rabbeinu never doubted again. He was a different man. Any leader in any environment sometimes has moments of despair when you wonder, did I change anything? Did I alter anyone? Did I make a difference? And those are the moments where we have to know in our heart of hearts that there is no kindness we do that is ever forgotten and no inspiration that we give to others that is ever in vain. Never doubt the impact of your leadership because when we lead, we do change lives. So that was the fourth lesson I learned which helped me through some very difficult moments in my career. Never despair. You do make a difference. And finally, I give you my last thought. Anyone know the first question Moshe Rabbeinu asked of Hashem? I'll tell you the second question. The second question Moshe asked of Hashem is, Who are you? First question he asked of Hashem was, Mianochi, who am I? Now, you know that the Shutoshel Mikra, the plain sense of that question, Mianochi, was a feeling of personal unworthiness. Who am I to stand before Pharaoh and lead this people out into freedom? I'm not worthy. However, it seems to me that on a deeper level, this really was a question of identity. Mianochi, who actually am I? Because remember Moshe Rabbeinu's childhood. Moshe Rabbeinu was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's palace, had a name given to him by an Egyptian princess. He looked like an Egyptian, he spoke like one, he dressed like one. When he rescues Yisro's daughters at a well, they come home and they tell their father, Ish Mitzri Hitzilano, an Egyptian saved us. Moshe Rabbeinu could have spent his whole life as a prince of Egypt. All he needed was not to get involved in the politics of the Jewish people. He could have lived a life as prince of Egypt, a life of wealth, a life of power, 
and a life of ease. Then, consider Moshe Rabbeinu's adult life. Until the age of 80, he lives as a shepherd in Midian, tending his flocks, leading a quiet life far, far away from the pressures of politics and the strains and stresses of leadership. So when Moshe Rabbeinu asks, Mi anochi? This is a deep question of identity. Who actually am I? What is the answer to that ultimate existential question? Am I a prince of Egypt? Am I a Midianite shepherd? Or am I a Jew? And Moshe Rabbeinu surely knew because he was Adon Hanavi'im, the greatest prophet there ever was. Moshe Rabbeinu knew much more than anyone before or anyone since how much angst and aggravation he was letting himself in for. Arba'im shana akut bador to have to fight and wrestle with the generation for 40 years. Here was a man who was criticized by his enemies. He was criticized by his friends. He was criticized by his own brother and sister. He was a man who wrestled with Hashem and with his people throughout his career as a leader, who spent 40 years leading a people to the promised land that he himself was not privileged to enter. He could only see from afar. And yet here was the man who knew beyond all shadow of doubt that when your people are suffering, you cannot walk away. When your people need guidance, you must lead. And therefore, I believe, at the very moment that he asked the question, me anochi, he already knew the answer. That is what makes leaders lead. They know that at the end of the day, you cannot walk away from that challenge. And Moshe Rabbeinu surely knew. As according to Rashi, he told his successor, Yoshua, as I told my successor, just six months ago, Ashrecha shezachita lahanhig banav shel hamakom. Happy are you who have been chosen to lead the children of God. It is a privilege to lead the Jewish people. And when the call comes, you cannot say no. So for all of you who lead in ways wholly beautiful and admirable, and I can only salute every one of you, I say, may Hashem give you strength and satisfaction. May you know the truth of that Maimah Chazal that Aaron no se et no salve, which means when you lift others, you yourself are lifted. And may you bring blessing to Am Yisrael and to Hashem. Amen.